we can have a less broken system after everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and I, I think I can even clarify at the beginning that this book is less about the one right way to do things than about navigating that space that we often find ourselves in where we don't quite know the right thing to do and there are many different possible solutions. Um, and this book is a sort of sequel to my first book which was called Talking to Your Doctor about communication between doctors and nurses and people. And this book is about those circumstances where medicine science is imperfect and there are different routes to health and people's preferences are also variable, various depending on the individual. Oftentimes we find or it's told to us that medicine has the right answer and that we should follow that answer. And this book is uh, comprises chapters devoted to common health conditions and how for each one of those conditions and for health in general there's considerations that are very important about how people are different and how life proceeds in different paths. Um, and there are also considerations about how society is built, how society is structured, um, and how the inequity of society impacts what health conditions are considered important or not important. And um, it's really based on stories from the point of view of my patients and other people I know. And it strives to be grounded in thought and in science um, and also in things outside of science, but it's also meant to be accessible to people in general. And I'm going to read um, a good bit, or actually probably all of one chapter from this book. Um, and uh, the, the chapter is on pain, um, because pain is one of those things where the doctor or whoever often says that it's a quantifiable thing that we want to measure. In fact, that's until recently, you know, the pendulum has swung back and forth, but there was a, a time there for a decade or so where pain was said to be the fifth vital. seems now to have been a wrong turn. But in any case, there's always been the quantifiability of pain made into a thing, a, a, a point of consideration, a priority. And on the other hand, there's people's experiences with pain. So what I'm going to read talks about that. Um, chronic pain, many treatments, no solution. Understanding what it's like to be sick means starting with the story of someone who is sick. Every person is different. When a system is set up to bring the best health to, po to populations, even the best of intentions may not ensure that care is tailored to the individual. How do we bridge what a doctor knows to be true on the basis of science and what a patient is convinced is the case from, from their own experience? We will start with one story that introduces us to a whole volume of such conflicts, fruitful episodes of cognitive dissonance in the healthcare setting. Understanding these stories might nudge us closer to an understanding of care that respects the individual while still taking advantage of scientific advances derived from population science. Let's take pain. A system 
that assumes that everybody with pain has the same needs or weaknesses is likely to find drug addiction where none exists or to give out medication where none is needed. Mr. Wheeler, and I've changed the names of everybody in this book, except for mine, maybe. Mr. Wheeler is 65 years old and has a list of diseases that stretches down the page from diabetes to gout, depression to congestive heart failure. He has not held a job in about nine months, and his relationship with his wife is under stress. She lost her job, too, for reasons that have nothing to do with Mr. Wheeler's medical condition. They are about to lose their home. He frequently mentions his 11-year-old son, and his love and pride for the boy are evident. Mr. Wheeler is not working because of his pain. He has chronic nerve-related pain in his right leg, which causes swelling and discomfort. For weeks at a time, he is unable to walk on the leg, and he accurately, even a little coldly, describes the shooting pains that render him immobile. Whenever he comes in to see me, we dwell on the leg for nearly the entire length of the visit, leaving aside the many chronic conditions that we should discuss. Mr. Wheeler and I always have a nice chat when he comes to see me. His wife is pleasant, ready with a smile and a good word as we at Johns Hopkins provide. Sometimes I wonder if she is doing so prophylactically to make sure that her husband's doctor measures up to the standards for which our institution should stand. Her husband has been out of work for a comparatively short time. There is considerable pressure on him, perhaps from her, though I am not privy to the internal couple dynamic. But his wife usually smooths the path to what turns out to be the subject of discussion at many a visit, what we can do about his leg. At the same time that I attempt to offer comfort and a sense of healing, working with the patient assiduously to try and minimize his symptoms, we, both, we must both realize, though at different paces, that there is no cure. Indeed, thinking that there is a cure might lead to problems even worse than the disease. But refusing to offer some amelioration or hope is a betrayal of the trust that Mr. Wheeler has placed in me. Despite the chronic ongoing nature of this gentleman's pain and its refusal to recede before an ever-shifting array of partial treatments over many years, it would be a mistake to surrender to any personal nihilistic tendencies of mine, suggesting I can do nothing to help this man. He is on a number of medications, metoprolol to treat his blood pressure, Xanax to treat his anxiety, Flonase, a steroid to improve his running nose, which irritates his throat and causes problems sleeping. He also takes nortriptyline, a kind of antidepressant medication. While the pharmaceutical industry rightly gets a bad name, it does produce medications that help. Even though each of the medications I listed has its downsides and complications, Mr. Wheeler perceives them as offering him significant aid. He knows that his depression has improved since starting the nortriptyline. He can get through an anxiety attack since starting the Xanax. We talk about his blood pressure frequently, and we both agree it is now better controlled, even with the caveat that somebody with his level of blood pressure, on the basis of the available evidence, may or may not be clearly helped by medication in the sense of benefiting from reduced risk of stroke or heart attack. By the same token, he's on a number of medications to treat his pain, 
and they have helped him significantly. His gabapentin has risen, although it has not resolved it completely. He has on a patch of lidoderm, which also takes the edge off somewhat. When he first met me, he came to me with a number of prescriptions that had been started by other doctors. Two of them were oxycodone and morphine. His morphine was long-acting. He only had to take one pill a day. His oxycodone was short-acting. He took one pill every few hours. These were pills for his chronic pain. When I saw these pills, or the names of these pills, on his medicine list, my heart sank. I knew what the findings of so-called evidence-based medicine showed. Opiates, that is narcotics, a type of medication that includes oxycodone and morphine, are not effective in chronic pain, or at least no more effective than anti-inflammatory medications. I knew this because the literature, scholarly, both scholarly, directed at the lay public, and educational materials aimed at healthcare providers, told me at length about the dangerous opiate epidemic that was currently, like the rising sea levels that are the product of global warming, lapping at the shores of America's sick, dependent, and poor, sucking them below the surface. Pharmaceutical companies were encouraging doctors like me to prescribe these medications, and patients dependent on them were helping doctors overlook their misgivings and refill the prescriptions over and over again. So I reacted predictably, with sympathy and a listening ear, but no little certainty. Then, however, I learned later from the very same scholarly literature that a different balance obtains in the treatment of nerve-related pain. In fact, there is some evidence that opiates can help in such pain over the short term. Thus, looking back at the first visit with Mr. Wheeler, I had spent at least a few minutes in my most didactic, non-patient-centric mode telling him why opiates wouldn't work at all. Then, by the next visit, I had found out that for some patients with nerve-related pain, opiates can work, at least in the short term. The evidence was incomplete, and I was veering to and fro. Mr. Wheeler took this all in stride, believing in me because I was his doctor and knew better. Then came another look at the evidence, the same review of the literature, which I had not read thoroughly the first time, before the next visit. In the long term... The effectiveness of opiates was subject to unavoidable uncertainty. So in essence, we're back to the same place. Thanks either to a previous positive experience he had had with another physician, or to his perception that these pain medications had helped him deal with a chronic condition, Mr. Wheeler was not about to give up or reduce the dose of his opiates, at least not on this visit. At the same time, as a physician who felt bound to follow the dictates of evidence-based medicine, I found myself unable to completely agree with his preferences. Thus, I was caught between two broadly accepted orthodoxies of my profession, and I had no idea what to do. Nor did common practice help me with, uh, with an obvious answer or clear advice. What I decided in the end did not make me feel perfectly confident in either dogma. What did I end up doing? Before I get into that question, I want to go back to address the conflict at the core of present-day medicine between evidence and preference, decisions and care, and how that might apply to the treatment of pain.
pain is more complicated than it first appears. So it's pleasure, but that's a different chapter. Um, we do not know why one person's pain threshold is lower or higher than another's, nor do we know the precise pathways that explain how damage or stimuli encountered by peripheral nerves can alter perceptions of pain in the central nervous system. Of course, there is considerable research into the neurobiology, especially these days, functional imaging that can trace the changes in brain metabolism during an episode of pain. Although I don't know if you know, recently was, um, there was a lot made in the news about recent statistical findings that show that much functional MRI imaging does not show what the last 15 years of research. Stay tuned for that um, in the news. But in a larger sense, the treatment is a specific instance of the situation we encounter for many common health problems. Occasionally there are breakthroughs, but often the overall picture remains the same. Mr. Wheeler will always suffer from his pain. And while I can vary the particular menu of options available to him, I will never be able to assure him that we will make his pain go away entirely. If I were to choose a treatment that works well for the broadest cross-section of patients with chronic pain, it would be the treatment that many chronic pain practitioners have proposed multiple times in the scientific literature. Treatment centered on the patient sending, setting individual goals for himself or herself, avoiding medications that encourage dependence, optimizing the patient's mental health, and staying physically active. Such multidisciplinary regimens, including cognitive behavioral therapy, have been extensively reviewed. Why isn't such a course of treatment a realistic option for this patient? Why do so many patients have recourse to opiates? More important, why do doctors disdain these medications at the same time that many patients see them as their only cure? The questions and answers for the case of chronic pain are similar to those for other common conditions, laying out the contours for the complications and contradictions that are found at every turn of our modern healthcare delivery. I won't indulge here in a comprehensive history of pain, which this book is too limited to encompass. A number of excellent recent books cover this story in detail from a theoretical, historical, and patient narrative perspective. But what's most important to recount now is how we got here and how pa people with chronic pain live their lives. Like the other common conditions we discuss in this book, chronic pain is a long-lasting condition, often lifelong, which in the worldview of contemporary medicine is understood as a disease to be cured, not a condition to be sympathized with and healed. A condition to be cured, as chronic pain is still viewed by many doctors, requires a definitive diagnosis. There must be a reason, because a particular derangement of the organism, to use an older terminology, requires a solution particular to that cause. However, in many cases of chronic pain, there is no single discoverable cause. Many patients have come to me, for example, with chronic back pain, asking through their clear discomfort and frustration, what is going on? That is, what is the cause of their back pain? On the one hand, of course, it's a natural thing to desire a full account of what is causing our suffering. That's what Job asks, for example. Knowing a diagnosis is therapeutic, but I do not, though I do not know whether this therapeutic information works 
because the patient thus knows that someone cares about their suffering, or because he or she desires searching for causes, especially in the common conditions that we will explore here, can be counterproductive. It can lead to an ever-widening spiral of tests, which can reinforce this constant causal reaching. It can lead to frustration when a cause is not found, and it can cause recourse to specialists who are often yoked to this causal search. Most important, such a search can lead away from the search for symptomatic improvement. There are many methods available today to treat chronic pain and identify potential causes. The number of pain centers in the United States has increased over past years. Though recent reliable figures are difficult to come by, they numbered in the hundreds in the 1990s and continue to increase. Most assuredly, they lead the customer patient to believe that their pain will be improved. But underlying their efforts is the customary medical emphasis on diagnosis and treatment of a single defined condition. Of course, there are scientific advances being made in the field of pain control and pain research. There are specialties and exciting lab work. I am no expert in these fields. However, as a generalist physician, I do know about the day-to-day -day treatment of patients with chronic pain. The biggest elephant in the room is always these opiates, that is narcotics, a class of medication that provides significant benefit and causes great harm. Unfortunately, neither advocates of the medications nor their passionate detractors can lead to a one-size-fits-all solution for the treatment of pain. The evidence shows that they are not more effective than anti-inflammatory medicines for the treatment of chronic pain, yet they are used routinely for acute painful conditions and are definitely a boon to those suffering from terminal illnesses like cancer. However, the line between acute and chronic pain is not as sharp as one might think. If a person has many episodes of pain, clearly delineated one from the other, but those episodes never stop, is that pain acute or chronic? On the other hand, if someone has pain that never goes away, but only sometimes make it a, makes it impossible for that person to feel like they have a normal daily life, is that pain chronic or acute? A number of patients are the only drugs that work for them. There is nothing else that even touches their pain. They tell stories of trudging through medication after medication. That does not help. And then, often through a relative shared prescription, an emergency room visit, or a surgical procedure, they suddenly found opiates. Many know the, th the theoretical considerations that militate against chronic use of such medication, but still choose to take it. It is a strict ideological mind that can see these people and be determined to discontinue as many of these medications as possible. Yet opiates have serious problems. If it is undisputed that opiates can bring powerful benefits, it is almost as undisputed that their chronic use has led to massive problems such as a steadily advancing wave of misuse and addiction. This has caused death, disease, and strain on human beings and the system that is supposed to care for them. The figures have been publicized widely. There are millions of new opiate prescriptions yearly because doctors are prescribing these medications much more frequently than they were before. However, this is not because the medical evidence has crowned them with effectiveness in treating chronic pain. How do we bridge the two, then? How do we bridge the benefit that some find from these medications with the harm that is possible?
It is not easy, either as a person seeing doctors or as a doctor, from get, to get from the best medical evidence to the person in the room waiting to be helped. There are plenty of public policy solutions for the problem of overprescription of opiates and no shortage of providers, organizations, and researchers proposing them. However, in the moment of the visit, they all disappear in front of the person who is in pain. Let me explain what I mean about the contradictions involved in taking care of someone like Mr. Wheeler and the difficulties involved in living with a, chronic, with a common condition. Mr. Wheeler is in pain every day. Some days are worse and some are better. Depending on how you count medications, he has been on half a dozen or more just to treat his pain and jumped from one to the other and back again. He says, and this is a quote from him, that he feels like he will always live with it. It is always there. There are the medications, the constant presence of the pain, its worsening and improvement, sometimes for unclear reasons. There is the chore of changing the medication in the hopes that some edge can be gained on the pain. There are, of course, the regular discussions with his physician, me, about the downsides of using opiates chronically. When I marshal the reasons which I will discuss, which I which I have discussed, while they don't help or and even hurt in the long run. But since Mr. Wheeler is reasonably sure that these medications are the only thing that work for him, in the best case, these conversations are genteel assurances for myself, his doctor, that a modicum of profession, professional standards are employed. In the worst case, these conversations become awkward exercises in unsaid assumptions fears, and frustrations. On the one hand, there are my, his physician's, worries about the habit-forming nature of opiates. A even if we agree to taper him off these medications, that is, decrease them little by little until we're able to discontinue them entirely, we might not be able to make this work practically because of his dependence and the disruption that withdrawal from opiates might cause. On the other hand, there are Mr. Wheeler's fears that he might be seen as an addict and his frustration with not being able to stop taking medicines for his chronic pain. This is my description, based on my time with Mr. Wheeler and patients like him, of the way in which he recounts his experience. But there is a difference between my understanding of his experience, his own narrative of his experience, and finally, his experience itself, what it is like to be a person with this condition. This last item is something we need to piece together from a variety of sources, the patient's narrative, the empiric evidence of the scientific literature, and the empathy built in us by non-scientific and more humane and qualitative ways of understanding the experiences of a fellow human being. None of these alone is enough. Healthcare providers can no longer talk only to each other. By the same token, though, patients' voices, though obviously essential, are not the only ones that matter. Care is a partnership. Thus, we have to assemble evidence of many kinds in order to understand how to relate the story of a patient to the best care available by medicine. This is subjective, just like any narrative. So this is one chapter, Chronic Pain, from this book, Making Sense of Medicine. And um, with that, um, I think I'd like to take your questions about um, the approach I take in the book and um, and some other experiences that you might have had or questions you might have had about how to bridge medical evidence, scientific evidence, and people's preferences, um, and the general topic of things never being as simple as someone might say. So, happy to hear your questions.
and I yeah. think you get that sense in the first part of the book. Uh, what areas do you see in which the Beatty's preference really, in, in common areas of conflict between Beatty's preference and Edinburgh's taste, maybe? I think, you know, all across the spectrum. I think across the spectrum. You know, yeah. I think, um, so one example I give in the book is in the treatment of diabetes, where um, there's oftentimes very, um, there's oftentimes considerable emphasis placed on, on the knowing the level of, of hemoglobin A1C, which is obviously a commonly used blood test to track diabetes. And that number can be important in knowing how high the sugar is. But on the other hand, sometimes it's not the case that putting the number in the right range will help the patient feel better or, or be or will be healthier. So oftentimes maintaining or sometimes <laughs> maintaining stricter control of one's blood sugar level um, is not what the person wants. And they're justified in that. And that's a sort of a general point that some that my my philosophy is at the outset one should recognize people's preferences as legitimate. I mean, it seems like a simple thing to say, but in healthcare, to some people, it does come as a, a new thing, uh, at least to doctors um, and other people too. Um, so that's one example. I think, but I think the general principle pri ap applies across the board. Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, so, so, um, so, so any treatment that does anything at all involves some risks and benefits, right? If any any treatment that has no risks probably doesn't do much either, um, except maybe walking. Um, so, so any discussion between a healthcare provider, for example, a doctor and a patient should involve some discussion of risk. Um, and so there's a lot of attention paid, rightly so, these days to how you do that in a graphically, in a graphic way. So there, um, any of you that are in, in healthcare or have doctors might have seen so-called decision aids, which display, for example, for 100 people like you, uh, your chance of getting such and such might be this much. And so you might have 100 green dots representing 100 people and six of them turn orange, meaning that in the next some, some number of years, six out of 1,000 people might be susceptible to this condition. And that's very important, and there's a lot of research about how best to convey that risk graphically. Um, and I say that's important because, you know, Helping people in their decisions can decrease anxiety. It people makes people feel readier to to approach that decision. Um, but I think there's often an emotional component to risk communication because um, being sick is scary, and uh, there are a lot of, as I mentioned in this chapter I just read, there are a lot of unsaid fears and worries and emotions that come along with these decisions. And oftentimes these things are not included in the discussion of risk. So. The perfect decision aid, which does not exist and might never, in would include both a quantitative end, displaying what risks are with uh, a, a user-friendly graphical interface, and would also combine that with the emotional aspect, um, 
which I think influences how we perceive risk, obviously. Um, so I think those those are the two things that I see as important in risk communication. Obviously, there are all, all all a lot of other good practices in communication, which was treated in my first book. But you know, ex expressing, you know, showing empathy, giving chances to answer questions and ask questions, um, and and asking for preferences. So there's a lot of a lot of um, sides to that topic. I don't know. I think, I mean, I think um, it's interesting that the there was you know recently um, some publicity about a recent study about sitting down with a patient, but it's interesting that that a similar study was done 20 years ago, really? finding much similar much I mean a different population, slightly different findings, mm -hmm. but more or less the same sort of thing. So it's just interesting that um, or maybe it's 15 years yeah I think 15 years ago. Um, so it shows you. There's a famous um, estimate that a piece of research takes 17 years or so to get disseminated out to the wi wider world. So it shows you that even increased attention doesn't necessarily cause people to change their behavior. And you know, I think a lot of providers, a lot of doctors are brave people, and many, most, or we're all, let's say, vast majority are good intentioned. But um, I think we doctors and, and people in general act according to incentives, like everybody else. So have to get the incentives right to help us along to do the right thing. Um, it's always a push-pull, right? There are people that say you can't, you don't want to depend on paying doctors to do the right thing. You want them to do the right thing because they're ethical people and they're good professionals, well, which is true. But on the other hand, we also use incentives all the time in other spheres. Why are doctors different? So yeah, I think those um, those two things go together. But it is complicated. You're right. Yeah. Um, um, so I think um, I, I would. I think three ways come to mind. Um, um, sort of going from more quantitative to least quantitative. Um, one is, I think there's increasing use of various sorts of big data, large databases, to try to figure out how which doctors are outliers compared to other doctors in good or bad ways. And that's that's a nascent field that's just getting out there. Um, so there's one controversial try at this, which was came out about a year ago. I don't know if any of you are aware of ProPublica. That, that's a public journalism outfit. Um, it's a nonprofit. They have a number of um, 
initiatives about figuring out how to improve health care. Um, and I think their intentions are good and do a lot of good work. And they developed a, a thing called the Surgeon Scorecard, which basically uses big data to try and figure out whether a given surgeon has more or less complications than their colleagues for a given set of procedures, um, which is a good thought. Um, it appears that some of the data is incorrect, and it doesn't show what it's supposed to show. Um, so the question is whether that effort is any worse than what we have now, which are, or category two of things is word of mouth, or that is sometimes it's person-to-person -person word of mouth, like patient-to-patient -patient word of mouth, which I think means a great deal. If someone has a bad reputation, there's generally a reason. Right? If someone has a good reputation, there's generally a reason for that. Um, but sometimes specialists are recommended by other specialists because they know each other, and the repu that reputation doesn't necessarily correlate with being a good doctor. It, it can. Um, so but going back to the first category of databases, so the surgeon's scorecard is an imperfect avenue to figure this stuff out. But there's a lot of, there's a growing amount of data out there on comparing hospitals to each other. Um, uh, many hospitals in Maryland, there isn't data enough for that because Maryland uses other criteria than other states to, 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 to uh, rank hospitals. But there's something called Hospital Compare, which you should sh check out, which ranks hospitals, not doctors. But there is something called, uh, um, it's getting up and running. Nursing Home Compare. So these are all are projects of, um, federal government, thanks Obama. And um, and so there's ProPublica also collects data and probably has data on whether your doctor has taken money from pharmaceutical companies, how much and when. So it's sort of useful to know. So that's sort of the quantitative aspect. Then there's the, as I mentioned briefly, the word of mouth aspect. Um, if everybody likes Dr. Smith, she might be a good doctor. You know, she's probably not bad. And every, um, there are marginal cases where well-liked doctors turn out to be horrible people, but I think that is at the margins. So I think reputation can be good for something. It can be very misleading. So U.S. News and World Report recently put out again its yearly ranking of the best hospitals, um, which personally I don't care about because I think the data, the methodology is suspect and the rankings don't mean much. But a lot of people use those rankings to make consequential health decisions. So besides data available and reputation, um, then I think you know, there is something to, a lot to be said for how the doctor behaves um, with you or with your whoever you're taking care of. So I've had patients that come and see me for a tryout, which I think is a great idea, actually, if you can afford it and make the time. Um, in fact, one person said, you know, a couple people said to me explicitly, we're coming just to see how you do. I'm like, great, okay, sounds good. I'll be on my best behavior. Um, and so, you know, what does it mean? Well, it, I talk about that in the first book, also in this book. So do they, do they, you know, ask what you want to do, right? Do they tell you there are options? Do they ask what you prefer? Do they give you a chance to ask, ask questions? Do they answer your questions? Do they, you know, try to um, empathize? Do they have, do they, does it seem like they're listening to you? All these things that seem not particularly innovative, but I think also is a good sign. So that's, that's, for a lot of people, that's enough to get on with. And unfortunately, excuse me, given our healthcare system, which, uh, you know, a although access is improving, it's still not universal care, uh, most people's options are constrained, right? You can't see uh, absolutely every doctor you want. So for most people, those sort of general guidelines together with what your insurance covers, 
often constrained choices enough to, m to make a decision possible. Um, but again, it's not perfect. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's um Well, I I'm, I'm trying I'm trying to remember what I said in the book and what he, uh, he he's in his 50s. Did I, did I say that in, the, in the, what I You said he had an 11-year-old son. Yeah. I don't think he's 32. But um I don't know. I nice catch. Thank you. Nice catch. Uh, no, he never, yeah, okay. not from him. Okay. Uh, yes. Okay. Oh, no, actually, no. No, 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 he's working through all of this. That's the crazy thing. Okay. Sorry, unemployed. He, he eventually got it back. After I wrote this, he got back at, he got employed again. So he's intermittently unemployed, but, like, he's not chronically on disability like a lot of people I know. Yeah, um, I don't really think much of anything I would say differently, you know. I try to, like there's people, the situation and people with pain can be so fraught, like you're, you know, there. Uh, yes, I, I think in many people, in some people, there is concern over misuse of narcotics or, or selling um, drug addiction. Plenty of people have, they have pain and they have addiction and they have mental health disorders and they have stressed families, so those things can always happen. Um, so I didn't, that's not the case for this person. He has chronic pain, he has a number of diseases, he has diabetes, which probably contributes a lot to his pain. He has a history of uh, vascular disease, which I didn't get into, which um, contributes a lot. Um, his gout doesn't help matters. Um, so probably the diabetes and his vascular disease together um, make his pain worse. I don't think his wife is, I mean, yes, he might be dependent on her in the way that many spouses are, and she's probably dependent on him somewhat in the way that many spouses are. So I don't think that's contributing all that much. Um, you know, if I, if I were to say something to him, and in fact, I think I, s I told him this, I, I, want, I would want to say, I'm really worried the opiates are doing you more harm than good, but you feel like they're helping, so it's not, you're not on a terribly huge amount. So I'm, I willing to continue, but we should 
continue to try to taper them down. And we've tried that a couple times. We've, I mean, he's not on as high as a dose as he used to be. Um, so there's, there is no one like big skeleton in the closet that I have been re reluctant to drag out in front of him, or there's no one truth that I would tell him if I were being more honest or something. Um, that's sort of the point, I think, is that for a lot of people, it is kind of like that. There's a lot of things that go on that make it worse, and they're sort of muddling through or na navigating or or, um, or or trying to care. There's a book, which I refer to in this book, uh, about the logic of care, where it's not really about decisions. It's sort of about bringing someone along or navigating with somebody. So that's a lot of it. Like there's no one thing that I could, if there were one thing we could tweak, we would have tweaked it. In fact, his diabetes is pretty well controlled. Um, he's been through a lot. He had a heart attack. He had a gastrointestinal bleed. A lot of things that went on. And in fact, which I don't say in the book because it happened after the book, um, the person that this person is based on, because it sort of changed the name and some identifying details, um, had a cancer and passed away. Um, so... Um, so in the end, he had, a, uh, he had a demise, and that was uh, very sad. Um, but I think um, you know he managed to work for a good long time. Um, there's all sorts of family dynamics, which I'm not. So I mean, his life—it's sort of like it's one of the rewarding things about being a doctor is that I got—I was privy to his life, which was very interesting. I think it's more of the latter that he doesn't like. I mean, he was, aside from that period of unemployment I mentioned, like he was always either looking for a job, doing work on the side, a lot of things that interested him but besides his pain. Um, yeah, so I, I've met people that sort of inhabit their pain in a certain way. I think that's a minority of people. Um, but so I, I, I get the type of person that you're talking about, but he's not one of them. I also think it's important to realize that experience of pain is not predominantly or solely individually mediated. That there's a lot of literature on how people in various cultures feel pain, right? There's a sense in which the poor and disenfranchised and marginalized society, um, you know, so for example, African Americans are more likely to be thought drug seekers than, than people with pain, right? It's just the way, you know, racism works in our society, or one of the ways it works. So I've often had to remind my the house staff that I teach with, who are excellent, um, in our resident clinic at Johns Hopkins, that the person in front of them should be judged on the basis of their symptom report and their exam. Um, and so we shouldn't assume that they're drug-seeking because they come reporting pain. But that sort of assumption is often more, and I talk about this in the book at length, 
tends to be the case, more often the case of someone whose skin is one color versus another color, which tells us that pain, society determines how we perceive pain, right? Which is why people have to, uh, some people have to come to doctors to write letters to whoever, either to an employer or to an insurance company or to for disability, pain is real, right? Because doctors often serve a, a gatekeeper function. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's certainly a real thing as well. Well, it's that this is a real, it's a hard thing. So, so some of you might have heard recently that um, the Centers for Disease Control issued new guidelines on treating people with chronic. Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I, th I mean, yes. They, they I mean, th it's the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is the full name. I think they dropped the prevention at some point, but they or maybe they added it back on. But they care a lot about things other than infectious disease. They care a lot about chronic treatment. I mean, I can't. I I, I will tell you, this is the first time I ever went to their website to read a guideline that they issued because I don't think I, I don't think of the CDC when I treat my patients because usually I don't. But anyway, this guideline is very good. And a lot of useful information for people with pain and doctors and some useful criteria to figure out and to sort of quantify pain. So, you And then some criteria to know when opiates are a less bad or just bad, bad idea. It's never a great idea. Um, it's, a, it's a useful thing, but not an ideal thing. And so they give a lot of good criteria and guidelines. Um, I, th I think the problem with that guideline is there's very little mention in them about social context of pain or about individual experience of pain. It's a very, and of course, I'm a biomedically trained physician. I believe in biomedicine and vaccines and medicine and all the rest of it. But there's a certain way that can be very limiting, especially in people with experience of pain. Sorry, so you asked, but you asked about drug, about um, drug, you know, people with substance use disorders and how do you avoid that in people with pain or people without pain? So in general, you try to write less of them. That's sort of a population health. Like you, you realize there's an opiate epidemic. This is a phrase people use a lot nowadays. And so, a goal the public health establishment has decided on is we should all write people for less opiates. Which, everything being equal, I think that would be a great goal. Things are not always equal, though. So you know, I think we're going to see a lot of people getting a lot of less opiates. And in fact, it is. The curve is already like for the past few years, it's been it's been down. It's been trending down. Which I think, again, everything being equal. If fewer people got narcotics, I would not shed any tears. And I think that will decrease death and disease on a population level. But I think there are people getting left out at the margins, and the people getting left out are the people that have pain for whom these medicines are effective, reasonably. So that's a problem. I mean, it's, it's not, and it's, it, as oftentimes in population health versus individual health, these, these problems are not commensurate. It's not like you, you can't cancel one problem out because you solved another problem. It doesn't work that way. That's one thing. You, you people are going to write less of them, and then sort of individually or or in a clinic or in a given setting, you you know you do urine tests to make sure that people are actually using the opiates that you're giving them, so they don't sell them. You try to treat substance use disorder. You try to pay attention to people's mental health. You don't um, you know you 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 fire people from clinics if they're acting suspiciously. You know, or if, or if you know they're selling opiates, you don't do it. You don't give it to them again. You know, plenty of strategies um, to, 
trick is to use these strategies in a way that doesn't alienate people that have pain and need medicines. And it's also the case that people with chronic pain tend to have mental health issues and tend to come from stressed families and tend to have problems with the law because the law is problematic and tends to find problems. So plenty of these things all hang together, which makes it difficult. But yes, people stealing and, 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 and you know, crime is a thing and diverting and, and selling opiates is, a, is definitely a phenomenon. So I'm not saying these things don't exist and it's not a problem. Um, in fact, you know, I teach in the resident clinic every week, and this is an issue that always comes up. Um, I, I was on a patient case because I had some major surgery. Uh -huh. They gave me um, overprednisone, and uh -huh. I went on that for I think I'm not sure what exactly mm -hmm. it was, and I thought, um, I, I don't know about taking all this stuff. Yeah. And the nurse that came in, I always said, um, you're aware, because you won't get the prednisone, but I'm thinking, Oh, you were aware, so you won't get this out. That, that, that's what they yeah, said. Yeah, and uh -huh. she said, you, she said, you need it. You need it to not have pain, so your body can heal. Yep. So I mean, but how do you know? I mean, how, you know, my father used to drink. I mean, he wasn't. I wouldn't say he was an alcoholic, but he did drink a lot. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I just don't. I did. I don't want to get to that point. Yep. Someone said, well, you can get addicted after like five, six days. Is that? Have you? Um. Seen any of that? <laughs> I mean. Uh, you know, I think I think the general motto is that you, know, you try to give people the, the least amount for the least time to keep treat their. You know, it's, I think, for, I mean, for example, I, I don't know your particular case, but um, there's been a lot of overprescription of opiates in the post-operative and people you know, in the post-operative setting or in emergency rooms or where people are have chronic pain. People, you know, I was I think when I first started my medical training, I was taught that when someone shows up with acute pain, you give them oxycodone or Percocet or something. Don't do that anymore. So that's so trying to limit that sort of thing is one way of. Uh, I mean, it's. I think. I, I I agree with what the nurse said. You know, you want to take pain. You want to take pain medicines to reduce your acute pain, and then you want to try to wean yourself off. And I think, you know, um, I think having a real problem with opiates after a week is very uncommon. Um, but you know around a number of weeks, it's sort of the time you start to try and taper things down. It's, it, there's no, you know, there's no magic number, but um, being mindful and, and, and trying to come them off sooner rather than later can help manage, I think. That's a that's a concern. Um, you know, care can be very fragmented, um, and also part of it is that insurance companies are always churning who's on their who's in their roles, right? So you can have to switch doctors for no particular reason, right? Happens to a lot of people, I think. Um, or doctors decide not to take various insurances. Um, so fragmentation of care is an issue. Um, you know, I don't, and I think. That's why I, I see a lot of patients that want to centralize their care in one place, right? So, so people come to see you because they have a Hopkins specialist and they want a Hopkins primary care doctor. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if I have a anything of you know any great, greatly innovative thing to say about fragmentation of care because it's bad. You know, I think there are people a lot like peop people 
think a lot of are doing a lot of research on how best do you coordinate primary care with specialist care, right? So one common example is, and I write about cancer in the book, but after someone has finished their cancer treatment, um, when do they, when do you stop seeing the oncologist and start going back to seeing your primary care doctor or whoever? And that's an inexact science, but that's something people work on. Not quite fragmentation, but coordination of care. Yeah, so there's so, so right. So I think there's a lot of efforts made to improve that, and whether that's improving the record, the medical record, so people, patients can actually use it, um, or whether that's um, trying to get doctors in the same room and talking you know, about the same patient at the same time. Um, so I think that that's something we have to we have to go a long way towards fixing. hard <laughs> it's hard I, I hate saying that stuff, stuff like that but yeah if you're if you if you have the wherewithal and the, and the resources and the engagement then sure you know can't hurt especially when people are newly at the clinic I carry around in my briefcase a three-page spreadsheet with all my notes doctors appointments uh, and you know phone numbers just so that I can sort of translate from one to the other because she's yeah. on Medicare so she doesn't have a lot of people do that yeah. yeah a lot of people do that yeah and I, I think it, I mean so so That, that 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 an internal medicine doctor would do to coordinate care. I mean, yeah, you you, you want to you want to be quarterback is what people say, right? You want to coordinate care between doctors and um, yeah. I don't know any primary care doctor that knows what they're doing, tries to coordinate care. It's hard, but that's what part of what primary care or doctors or nurse practitioners or any number of primary care providers. That's what they do. They try to coordinate things, and it's hard when when medical records are different and people are geographically separated and um, so it's hard but it's it's you know it's doable you can it's it's not it's not an impossible task Thank you. Oh. That's, this is a useful thing. Thank you. Right. We don't sell these. We're not allowed to have them at uh, Okay. Wow. I'll keep my Percocet in it. All right. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming. It's very fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we have the book at Thing Time yeah. for sale. Yeah. And so you bring it by to sign. Yes, yes, yes.